Advent uh, as we uh, lit the candle for joy. Um, and we're going to uh, spend some time uh, looking at a text that is not necessarily your typical Advent text, uh, though it fits uh, perfectly in with the readings that we read. Uh, and then as we get towards the end, we're going to have uh, some prayer time together. This is not something we do every Sunday, um, but as we have gone through this season, we've just recognized that not only uh, us, some of us on staff kind of going through some difficult uh, seasons, but also at the church there's a lot of, of cries out for lament, a lot of naming of uh, joys not yet realized, uh, of hopes that have been deferred. And even as we have looked at the scriptures and looked ahead to this week, we just have seen this theme throughout Advent as we wait, as we sit in this season of waiting for Christ to come back, that we're invited to really name the things uh, that are not right, uh, the unjust uh, aspects of the world that we live in, the aspects where we need healing in our own selves, our families, as well as the world around us. So I just want to prepare your hearts as we get towards the end of this sermon. I'm going to invite you to pray uh, out loud, uh, and I'll prompt you through it. Um, but this is an opportunity for us to remember, too, that church is not... Uh, you don't come as uh, a, you know, someone just coming like you're coming to a concert uh, to sit in the seats and look up, but you come as a part of the church to do the work together. Literally, the word liturgy is work of the people. Uh, so when we do the liturgy Sunday in and Sunday out, you're participating, uh, not just as someone that consumes on a Sunday morning, uh, but you also are giving to the people around you. Uh, and we will lean into that this morning. I'm going to read the text from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6, which is in bright pink up there uh, for you to see. Uh, and then I'll pray and dive into this together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Amen? Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty... I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly grateful for the Bible. We're incredibly grateful that this story that you have been writing since the beginning of time, we get to understand it through the words in this book. From Genesis to Revelation, we see the themes of your redemption. Speaking of the, the study in Genesis, 
to Revelation, the, the promise that we will be your people and you will be our God. Despite our unfaithfulness, you remain faithful. And I pray that the Scripture would be used today to convict our hearts where we are prone to sin. Remind us of the truth of who you are. And may our affections be stirred towards you. Father, I pray for those who are hurting in our midst. I pray that you would bring healing. I pray where there's brokenness, there would be wholeness. Where there is confusion, there would be clarity. Where there is lacking, whether it's funds or housing or food, may you provide in abundance. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who works in a local high school here in Atlanta. She was sitting in on one of the high school lit classes, the literature classes, and they were discussing the Iliad. And I know this is two Greek literature references in two months, so just bear with me after that erroneous Star Wars reference from three months ago where I named the number of the episode with the wrong title and just had this collective eye roll from one side to another. I'm now just going to obscure references that many of you have never heard of. Um, But the class had been reading the classic, the Iliad, and was having a class discussion on it. And my friend was sitting in on it. She works with kind of the kids that have uh, kind of some unique challenges. Uh, So she just sits in on some of the classrooms. But she was there that day. Well, the class had been reading, it was having the discussion, and a little bit of background here on the story. There's the king of Ithaca, uh, was a dude named Odysseus. He was married to a woman named Penelope. At one point in the story, Odysseus had been gone from home for 20 years. Odysseus and Penelope were already married, so as a husband, he was gone for 20 years. For the first ten, he spent fighting heroically and victoriously with the Greeks in the Trojan War. And the last ten, he spent just trying to get home. Despite the unknowns of if or when Odysseus would come home, and the obvious fears for her husband's safety and well-being, and even as other potential suitors tried to win Penelope's love, Odysseus' wife, Penelope, remained faithful. She was very honest about her pain, but remained hopeful that one day her husband would return. At this point in the discussion, the teacher asked the students to specifically share their thoughts on the character of Penelope. One of the young women, a 14-year-old, a freshman in the class, raised her hand and said that Penelope, as she waited 20 years for Odysseus's return, Penelope had a grieving hope. This girl went on to explain that though Penelope never gave in to the temptation to give up the expectation that Odysseus would return, she was also honest about it. In the time of his absence, she allowed her heart 
to ache. Her longings, though unfulfilled, were real. And in a way, she grieved even as she hoped for his return. Friends, as we've walked through Advent these last three weeks, we've lit candles. We heard a beautiful testimony the first week. We actually had another one prepared today, but Addie Mummy got ill and was unable to make it. We looked at texts like John the Baptist preparing the way for Christ. And in some ways, Advent is like a mini Lent. For those of you who are new to the church or new to the church calendar, Lent is the season leading up to Easter. And in Lent, we take a specific kind of concentrated look at our mortality, our sinfulness, our need for Christ to die on the cross. An invitation during Lent and in Advent is an invitation to slow down, to name the desires that you and I long for the injustices we see in the world and the prayers, the prayers that you have prayed that feel seemingly unanswered. It's a time to name our grieving hope. You see, as much as we try our best to lean into the story of Mary and the darkness that the people of God were experiencing in that time, those hundreds of years leading up to Christ's birth where God was seemingly silent, We know the end of this story. We know that there's a first candle, a second candle, a third candle, but there's still a fourth and a fifth, the Christ candle, to come. That baby is going to be born. The child is coming, and despite all odds against it, all worldly odds against it, we know how this story ends. So though we grieve in the season of Advent, we do so with what? A grieving hope. Not only do we know that baby is going to be born, we know that baby is going to grow up. That baby is going to start a revolution of sacrificial love. That baby is going to initiate this by his own willingness to take on our sins And ultimately, that baby is going to grow up and promise to return again. So that passage from Revelation gives us a picture of what we have to look forward to. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will be their God. And what does he do in our presence? He wipes away every tear from their eyes. No more death or mourning, or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. Seated on the throne, our God, that baby grows up and declares, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. It is my favorite part of the whole passage. To the thirsty, I will give water. 
And not just water, but water without cost. From the spring of the water of life. So, brothers and sisters, when we read Revelation 21 in the season of Advent, this is what we look forward to. The groans, the moans, the longing. We are not there yet. So then it begs the question, what is our role now? What do we do with the knowledge that the promise is to come? How now shall we live? And I say, I don't know exactly what that means for your life and your day-to-day, but I do know that we do live with hope. But we are also invited to not only name the injustices, the brokenness, the wrongs of this world, but we are called, we are invited to work for this new kingdom as sons and daughters of that king. And part of the work that we do, it's not less than this, but part of the work that we do is we come to the Lord in prayer together. We name our longings, our griefs, our wounds, to name the brokenness and the pain of ourselves as well as the brothers and sisters around us. And we lament. We cry out this world's not as it should be. And I want you to know this isn't just an exercise of therapy. There's power in this grieving hope. After the tragedy of 9-11, Tim Keller, who was a pastor up in New York, he addressed this issue. He talked about, on the one hand, when we are met with life's tragedies, we can avoid grief and try to avoid grief. We can try to avoid weeping, compartmentalize as best we can, but the result of this is that we become hard or in some way lack humanity. Or else it will just erupt later, bite and devastate you and the people around you. The other mistake, though, is that we grieve, we let ourselves feel, but we do so without any hope. The love and the hope of God in one another has to be rubbed into our our grief, almost like a, a lotion or a salve. So you rub salt into meat or it will go bad. The grief is either going to make you bleaker and weaker or it can make you far wiser and good and tender if the hope is rubbed into it. And that's what we're here to do today. I'm going to invite you to pray in a minute, and when we do so, we're here not just to weep, but we're here to sprinkle and rub hope and love into the weeping. Because you see, when we hope without naming the grief, it's a, a fantasy world we live in, but again, if we grieve without hope, we're never going to make it out of bed in the morning. But when we do grieve with hope, we are not only honest, but the Lord slowly, inevitably changes that grief into a joy that has substance to it. So Christmas, looking ahead, eight days from now, is not simply a holiday we look forward to, that season of Christmas, but a celebration. When we Grieve well with hope. It's a celebration we feel in the deepest parts of who we are. Bonhoeffer, a 
a theologian from earlier in the 20th century. He's talked about Advent, and he said the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul. To those who know themselves to be poor and imperfect. And I would add, to those who know the world to be imperfect. And who look forward to something greater again. 